0: Welcome to Lamb Talks, the official podcast of Lambda Kappa Sigma. I'm Sarah Caboyan, and I'm a community pharmacist, Lambda Kappa Sigma sister, and a lamb for life. And I'm Justine Dixon. I'm an ambulatory care pharmacist, Lambda Kappa Sigma sister, and a lamb for life. Our mission is to elevate our sisters in pharmacy by connecting them with our esteemed alumni network. Tune into each episode to meet our new guests, stay connected with your fellow sisters,
1: and learn something new about the world of pharmacy.
0: Hi, Hi. sisters. Today, we have a very special episode where we're continuing our sort of COVID talks, COVID chat series. So, Justine and I are here with a very special guest. We have Carrie Melissa. She's a sister and a pharmacist, and I'm actually going to let her give us kind of her bio. So, welcome, Carrie.
2: Thank you. As Sarah said, I'm Carrie Molessa. I'm a clinical pharmacist specialist in uh, the city of Detroit at a very large medical center. I work in our largest acute care hospital, uh, and I'm in charge of two very large adult internal medicine units that encompasses anywhere from 50 to 60 patients. And then about 20% of my work is also involved with the adult cystic fibrosis population, both inpatient and outpatient in clinic. And my hospital is a
1: teaching hospital. We are university affiliated, but not owned. That's awesome. So cystic fibrosis, I'm sure during this time is probably, what are you doing telling them to just stay in their homes and not leave? Yeah, basically. Yeah, um, we were really, funny.
2: really fearful for mm-hmm. um, our CF patients, and for they sure. were very fearful for mm-hmm. themselves. Yeah, but yeah. one of the advantages is that they are very well versed as adults on taking appropriate infection control and being yeah. extra careful because of the risks they inherently have.
1: Mm-hmm. So
2: they've actually been doing great. We get a, a mailing at, about once a week from the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation, which does an amazing job keeping track of data of all these patients through a nationwide database that everyone's uh, not required to submit to. You're required to submit, but patients can opt out of it. But this database has been tracking um, the number of patients that have been tested and the number of cases is shockingly low and uh, the number of deaths even lower.
1: Wow. That's really awesome. They've been
2: doing really great. So I'm relieved. Yeah,
1: (laughs) absolutely. I'm working in a kidney transplant clinic. So I the the nerves, as soon as this all hit, it was like, I, you know, I had nerve nerves about transplants, CF, cancer patients, like, you know, and then obviously the general public and the elderly, of course, um, sure. but there's definitely those vulnerable populations. So I think CF is a really unique experience. It's really nice that they have you involved. Are you the only pharmacist that does that?
2: I am. Um, nice. It's interesting. It kind of grew as a specialty as uh, an accident. Mm-hmm. It was just kind of something that I temporarily covered some of our ID services, when we when our specialists had to relocate and pages with questions. I went. Like, I just didn't feel comfortable or competent enough answering them. As I mean, I was straight out of residency at that point, so I really made an effort to learn more and work closely with the pulmonologist. And I think she saw something me, in me and. Um, from there, she was like, Hey, do you want to maybe go to the CF meeting? I'll, you know, pay for you to go. I was like, okay, sure. And it was very overwhelming at first, but it's ended up being one of the most gratifying areas of my practice. It's my favorite part of my job. I love the patients. I love the people. I love the team. It's just a really great group and a lot of exciting things happening in CF right now. So yeah,
1: absolutely. I so there's yeah. new therapy out. That's great. Yeah.
2: A lot of new therapies, a lot of really great outcomes on our patients and Something to get really jazzed
0: about.
1: (laughs) So can you tell us a little bit more, I guess, about what's going on with COVID at the hospital and I guess how your role maybe has changed with COVID and, you know, coming in, coming out, you know, where you guys are right now. So our first official
2: patient with COVID was like confirmed diagnosed that we were aware of was March 17th. So we are, you know, a solid two months almost into this. I'm sure we had patients before that, but didn't know it for sure. But our first one was officially March 17th. So we're quite a ways into this. Things have started over the last probably 10 to 14 days, slowing down a little bit. My perspective on things is a little bit skewed in that the, the two very large units that I cover were very early on deemed to be COVID positive units or if you were a, a person under investigation or a PUI, you were sent to those units and, and dealt with with appropriate contact precautions. And as things have started to slow down a little bit, they've pulled patients off of other units so that they can deep clean and sanitize and reopen them as non-COVID units. Uh, but that's not happened yet on my floors because I'm still, they're still quarantining sort of the COVID patients there or cohorting them. So, you know, early on, there was, I think, a lot of misinformation and a lot of panic and a lot of people were incredibly worried. There is an obscene amount of data out there. There's one database that um, kind of compiles all this information. And as of April 30th, there was over 11,000 studies just on hydroxychloroquine that were published. So it's, I know it's insane. So getting through that evidence and a lot of it is very small uh, sample sizes or just case series, kind of really going through things, looking at the quality of the evidence and what they've been, how it's applicable to your population early on was super important. And just kind of the whole team getting together and trying to figure out what to do for these patients. And over time, you know, that really intense review up front. Um, We created some policies and protocols for treating patients, not just for the COVID piece, but the things that go with it. Like sometimes we see rapid changes in renal function for these people. So we already took our renal dosing policies and protocols and expounded on those. We grew it to other drugs so that pharmacists can automatically change a ton of things um, in response to a, a patient's fluctuating renal function. We expounded, obviously, on the anticoagulation piece of what we do as clinicians in response. We didn't have, you know, this this population is very unique in their thromboembolism situation. And so they really needed their own inpatient and outpatient kind of recommendations. So, and that obviously is changing day by day. And that's really kind of the bulk of what's happened. Now that things are slowing down, We've been reviewing data as we go a little bit, but we have major plans for reviewing everything we did and making changes over the summer in anticipation for a potential second wave in the fall.
1: Who was someone like in our hospital, for instance, somebody was kind of redeployed to solely manage drug shortages in the time being because we were hit with a lot of them. Um, Were you guys hit with a lot of drug shortages in response to this as well? How have you kind of dealt with that?
2: Yeah, you know, we've dealt with some shortages. I think one of the things that was that we did very early on was really addressing what are we doing for these patients and how much PPE does it need uh, or personal protective equipment because we wanted to minimize the number of times that a healthcare provider, whether it's a nurse or respiratory therapist, whomever, needs to go into that room and use it, equipment so it was looking at okay we often use nebulized solutions for breathing treatments but if we can achieve that by using an inhaler instead of making an rt go in to do a treatment you know just having the nurse use the meter dose inhaler at the bedside well then we ran into issues with some access to inhalers so you know it was really a lot of looking at what do we have what can we do that's potentially easier you know so Atrovent uh, or a pritrobrium inhalers, meter dose inhalers right now are incredibly short, and the price I think skyrocketed to like four hundred bucks an inhaler or something like that, which is oh ridiculous. So you know we're using other things like um, uh, our formulary antimuscarinic is uh, umecladinium, so using that because it's once a day. Mm -hmm. instead of going in several times a day so it's cheaper and better for conserving ppe so we've been able to work around a lot of it you know there still are some um some shortage things like anoxaparin 30 milligram i think was one that we really had an issue with um and obviously we're trying to do that instead of every eight hour sub-q heparin for vte prophylaxis for patients so it was, it was a lot of changing what we're doing in response to those shortages, but we have a, a management group that's really excellent at keeping an eye on that sort of thing. And we have a purchaser that purchases for kind of the system who keeps an eye on our stock and orders in advance when she knows we're going to have a demand for something. So not redeploying of people, but just kind of refocusing what we're normally doing.
0: When you um, mentioned VTE, my thought first went to, like, um, like codes. Were there specific COVID rapid response teams that were employed or set up? You know, I don't know
2: that they made a unique team, uh, but they did make a unique overhead code call. You know, the codes across the country are standardized. Code blue is code blue everywhere. But we called for anyone who is a PUI or confirmed COVID positive, we referred to it as code blue special so that everybody knew that if you were running to the code you needed to make sure you had all your equipment before you entered the room but really very early on it became clear that you were not going to the floor unless you had an n95 respirator you know you needed to have gloves and be appropriately um garbed if you were going into any patient's room because It was, it was really honestly very amazing. And I was still in January and February seeing a ton of influenza patients like confirmed positive influenza on PCR. And then all of a sudden it was like, influenza just dropped off and all of these COVID patients emerged. So, um, I mean, we're still testing for, for influenza. I think I only had like maybe one, At the very end of March, it was very early in this whole thing, and I haven't had any since. So, um, and I think they've officially declared influenza season over in Michigan. So,
1: I don't know. It's it's very interesting how, how that kind of all shifted. Of the other patients, so are you just taking care of COVID patients, or are there because it's? I think you said it was only quarantine, and I guess out of your, you know, is your census at the hospital? full or is it very low because it's only COVID patients? Are you seeing a lot of you know, the NSTEMIs and strokes or are they just not coming in?
2: You know, it's very interesting. Early on, it was a hundred percent COVID in the whole hospital. Basically there was like one small unit, maybe two, or there were some non-COVID situations happening and it's slowing down. We So what we initially did was turn some our, our ICUs filled and we needed more beds. So we took the pre-op and post-op holding areas for the OR because those nurses are already trained and competent in dealing with, you know, intubation, sedation, paralytics, some, you know, pressors, really the more ICU type care. They're already trained for that. We made those uh, COVID ICUs so that we would have extra beds for that. We cleared an internal medicine floor. And consolidated some patients in the knowledge that if we did need more space for people for ICU or intensive care type care we would have space for them Um, and then we took because all of our outpatient procedures and elective procedures basically stopped we have a holding area also for patients that are coming for uh, endoscopy colonoscopy some uh, interventional radiology type procedures and that became an inpatient non-COVID unit so there was some adjusting of logistics and definitely that made, you know allowed us to spread and make more room for patients. As things have slowed down, the OR areas are no longer ICU. They're back in the typical ICU units. And the one holding area for outpatient procedures is now, again, a holding area for outpatient procedures. We're doing a few things. I mean, we were doing like next to nothing. It needed to be medical emergency to do Mm -hmm. those kinds of uh, procedures before. But um, so it's getting better. And I think the amount of patients has dropped. I keep track every day of the number of people under investigation, confirmed positive, confirmed negative, and not even suspected patients. Right now, I think I had out of fifty patients today about five that or five or six that weren't even under investigation because they came with other symptoms. I can't speak for what was happening on the other units. Um, I know there's still like some MIs and things that are coming in because we do have a heart hot. We have a cardiovascular institute as part of our health system. So, so there's always stuff happening there. But yeah, I think for my medical center and I think much of Detroit, things are starting to slow down and I'm starting to see some other types of admissions. I know that's not happening across the state of Michigan. They are having an uptick um, on the West side right now in cases. So um, who knows, who really (laughs) really knows what's going to happen. You know, we could be hitting a plateau or we could be going down. I think level too early to say, but I think at least my medical center is past the peak for now.
1: Thank God. I know, right? Yeah. (laughs) I know. It's been, it's been really interesting. I think to watch kind of how everything is, is playing out. It's been a little crazy. Um, have you, when you guys discharge people, is there a a song that they play? I've been hearing a lot. I know our, our hospital does it. I think I've heard of other hospitals doing it too.
2: Um, it's not a discharge song, but when we extubate someone, we play we play a song.
1: Oh, nice! What is it?
2: It's uh, "I'll Be There," which is our. Um, it's based. It's obviously a Motown song, right? Um, but it's also our lo- our like logo or our slogan for the medical center.
1: Oh, that's cute! Um, I like that. I'm sure that makes everybody warm funny. and fuzzy.
2: Yeah, it's kind of like an uplift uplifting, sweet song. So, mm-hmm. and you know, initially everybody across the system wanted to know, you know how many people got expedited today, how many people died, how many people made it out of ICU. And so we have boards up everywhere um, at the entrances where for employees. So you can see exactly how many patients we've treated, how many have gone home, Mm -hmm. because I think that gives us a lot of like motivation to keep going. I think it really helps you understand how much work you've put in, how much you've done. And, you know, for those days where things don't go well for patients and can be real downers, you know, it keeps you motivated. I know a lot of my colleagues, because um, working in the pulmonary department, I work with all the pulmonary critical care attendings. And when they're rounding in the ICU, they just do not see their family. They completely isolate from their spouses and children, which mm-hmm. is incredibly depressing, you know, mm-hmm. it's depressing that people are dying alone, and then you go home and are alone,
1: mm-hmm. you know, yes. so... Has the hospital done anything to kind of help with anything like that? Any like the psychological
2: aspect? Yeah, yeah,
1: um,
2: yeah. There are counseling services available. They send emails all the time and say, "Hey, if you're having a tough time coping or you have any kind of issues, that these resources are available to you." Mm-hmm. So, um, and I think as a group, we a lot of the teams are very close knit, right? Even though it's multidisciplinary. We all work together every day and we care about one another. they like, you know, your work family. So I literally have a work wife. I love her. And she's been COVID positive at home for a month and still testing positive, you know? Wow. Um, but I still am reaching out to make sure they're okay. And I think the same thing at work, you know, making sure that the people that I work with are in the right state of mind. And when we have a bad day, recognizing that that was today, but tomorrow we're going to do better.
1: hmm Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Um, were you guys, are you involved in any kind of clinical trials or did you get allocated any remdesivir? Oh yeah.
2: Yeah. Right, a, right away. Oh yeah. We were uh, very aggressive about getting involved in any kind of studies that mm-hmm. were happening, especially if we felt like they had merit or needed, you know, further exploration. We're a hotspot as a teaching hospital, we're acutely aware of how important it is you know, offer the best care you can for your patient, but also pay it forward in mm-hmm. providing information to other people so that they know what to do, especially because we were, you know, heavily impacted, impacted you know, early compared to some other cities.
1: Mm-hmm. So,
2: yeah, we're definitely in remdesivir. I have a patient that received uh, plasma today. And then, of course, we're doing a lot of our own internal stuff that we do plan. reporting out, working with the hematology department on the thromboembolism piece, working with the infectious diseases group with uh, our hydroxychloroquine experience. So yeah. So hopefully we'll have lots and lots of things to share over the last next couple weeks to months. That way we can have a better plan for what to do for the fall.
1: Yes, absolutely. Hopefully eventually somebody does a meta-analysis of all this data. Oh my God.
2: Some of it is so bad though. (laughs) Well,
1: right. So they need to do a a meta-analysis now and then they can weed out the crappy stuff.
2: (laughs) I hope so. But, you know, I think a lot of it is just also uh, society today is really just like, I want the bottom line, right? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of scrolling through social media and you read only the title, but not the article. Right. Um, and, and even like the media here is at fault for it. the Free Press. Detroit Free Press did an article about one of the other hospitals here. They did a cohort of like five or six patients they talked about received plasma from people who had antibodies from recovering <laughs> from COVID. And they say all six lived and, you know, are doing great. And then the very last line of the article is these patients also received hydroxychloroquine and remdesivir. So they're, you know, in this article, talk about, you know, plasma with antibodies works, except they received every, you know, every other possible COVID treatment. And you can't tell from the three if, you know, which one worked, if any of them. And it's only six patients. So really, you know. Um, And that's really why I talk about it's so important to really look through the evidence, look at the pitfalls of the data, and really does this, you know, apply to your patient population? Because I have other colleagues that I talk to, you know, I personally don't see any benefit whatsoever from hydroxychloroquine. Mm -hmm. Other people say they do see some improvement. You know, is that a function of my patient population versus theirs? It absolutely could be. So, you know, that's why I think there needs to really be much more robust stuff. I think everybody's in just such a hurry to do something for people Mm -hmm. that they're doing anything they possibly can. And that to some degree affects the quality of the evidence we're going to have moving forward. But,
1: and from the sounds of it, it it also sounds like people are presenting so differently with so many different kinds of symptoms Symptoms, that, you know, you never really know, you know, maybe hydroxychloroquine hydroxychloroquine works for this specific type of person based mm-hmm. on genetics, based on, you know, who knows what, but we don't know what that is. And so it does work for some people, but it doesn't work for other people because of some enzyme or who knows. And
2: That's what we need to tease out really right? Is who's best suited for it. Right. But nobody has
1: that time. And then they're just going to submit for publication and they mu- they must be getting like a blink from a peer reviewer. And then just submit it and then just yeah, you know. peer review has never been more important. Yeah, it's just like, uh, I feel like it's like a genie blink, like, yep, go ahead. <laughs> then uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, what else are you going to do if there's 11,000 I mean, things out there?
2: I mean, because initially, like, we did not use corticosteroids because of the concern with based on evidence with other coronaviruses that it may impair the elimination of the virus and prolong or worse than the infection. And then we had a couple people when we started to get tight on vents that were looking like if we didn't do something, you know, they were gonna need to be intubated and we may not have a vent to do it. Or we might have to start sharing vents. And in those situations we tried some steroids and it worked. We were mm-hmm. like, huh. So that made us reevaluate, okay, maybe steroids are appropriate in some mm-hmm. people. And so, you know, then we changed our uh, our pathway involving that and how much steroid we give and for how long. So, you know, and I think that's kind of the best we can do at this point. Yeah. How many times
1: do you think your protocols changed? Oh my god.
2: <laughs> if I had a nickel for every time I reviewed some of these protocols, it's insane. I know our infectious disease specialists are have been working ungodly hours all hours Mm -hmm. i'm getting emails from them at like 5am and stuff oh my god yeah yeah. so i think once this we get over this wave i think everybody's gonna need a nice vacation
1: (laughs) yeah yeah, um, but they all can't take it at one time and who knows if they can fly. And well, they
2: won't be able to go anywhere, but even if you stay home and just don't check True. your email for a week, <laughs> yeah. I think that's, <laughs> don't that's get nice, paid like, for like, a, a week.
0: Comment, and that is all I am, <laughs> yeah.
2: Exactly. I mean, and some of us may be on uh, unpaid leave anyways because of kind of the rebound effect of all this, mm-hmm. right? Is hospitals were not able to do tests or procedures that make money and these COVID admissions are expensive, very, very expensive. And prolonged. So very long. I have a couple that are, you know, 40 and 50 days. Oh my God. So mm-hmm. yeah, that, you know, very so, so. complicated ICU admissions and ECMO and CRT. Oh yeah. traked and pegged, you know, may have been intubated for a prolonged number or a number of days and have vocal cord dysfunction. So they have mm-hmm. dysphagia and so... Lots of complications with this. So, um, where was I going with this? What were you talking about? This is a part. Oh, area. unpaid leave. Oh, yeah,
0: unpaid oh leave,
2: right. The right. So they're very, very costly admissions. Lots of services along with this, right? That are we're not going to get reimbursed for from insurance, mm-hmm. and so a lot of hospitals are hurting. I mean, mm-hmm. every health system in Detroit has furloughed patient uh, employees, and some have even permanently laid them off. So. Mm-hmm. I know my own medical center has done some small furloughs, mm-hmm. This mostly the services that we don't have a need for right now. Like, right. you know, we have one hospital that's entire rehab, right? So there's not a lot of outpatient rehab happening.
1: Mm-hmm. So
2: um, really minimizing some of the PTOT services. So mm-hmm. I don't know. We'll see. It's interesting that we needed to kind of contract some services and, expound on others I can only imagine the amount of work that our lab has been doing lately oh my god I know (laughs) because when COVID patients first started coming in we were gathering every piece of knowledge and information on them we possibly could to figure out you know what's going wrong and what can we fix but Mm -hmm. also so that we have some data points to draw from when we look back at all of this so Mm -hmm i mean the amount of you know d dimers every day like bronchitis <laughs> every day and it's just been uh like they've had their volume i'm sure has significantly increased so i'm sure their budgets blown too
1: have you have you seen a lot of times where you feel like maybe some of the tests are not accurate and they oh tons yeah and so you like what kind of labs are you looking at where you're like okay this is a covid patient but their nasal swab is saying negative you know, two or three times, but what labs are you seeing that you're like, this is COVID totally?
2: So, you know, the test does have like a 30% false uh, negative rate Mm -hmm. Um, that's reported. And I absolutely see that. And then even further out from the onset of symptoms, the testing becomes less reliable. And this is actually, I think JAMA or New England Journal published a really nice kind of like diagram for the testing and when it's most effective. So, and because testing was sent out early on, we didn't have it on site until April 1st. So for the first two weeks, there was like this big delay. So we were really relying heavily on patient presentation, but also some of the labs. And what you see typically are inflammatory markers are incredibly elevated. So C-reactive protein, um, ferritin, often over a thousand, which mm-hmm. is very high. Um, and I have one today that was 4,400. So they're like ridiculously high. Yeah. So acute phase reactants and inflammatory markers, very elevated. Mm-hmm. Um, CPK, LDH, they usually don't have an elevated white count. Um, if they do, that's usually somebody I've experienced that's later in the progression and much more mm-hmm. severe. Um, and low on your CBC and the differential, that absolute lymphocyte count will be low and the lower it is, I've noticed the worst patients do. Hmm. So those are the kinds of other things we're looking, obviously elevated D-dimer. let me see what else. I made myself a list. I think I hit everything. Oh, you know what? A lot of these patients do come in with electrolyte abnormalities because mm-hmm. they're, they're, many of them are experiencing nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, inability right. to tolerate oral intake, um, so they come in dehydrated and will have either very high or very low sodium. And so they may be altered because mm-hmm. of the abnormal sodium. So um, that's kind of one of the other things I noticed
1: right yeah. along with it. Do you mm-hmm. see a lot of them that also have some sort of like co-infection or no. Are they, no, just are they having pneumonia no. or anything?
2: No. uh, uh-uh. I mean, the chest x-rays look like atypical or multifocal pneumonia. And so we often start antibiotics at the beginning because Right away, you
1: don't know. and You're waiting for a result.
2: Yeah. yeah, I mean, you got people that come in with low-grade fever or maybe not low-grade, maybe very high fever, but intermittent usually, and they're tachycardic and hypoxic, and you have an x-ray that looks like multifocal pneumonia. Any Mm -hmm. lawyer says you you need to treat it, right? Right. And because testing was taking so long, we were kind of doing everything, treating for pneumonia and for COVID. And then once we would start to get a better picture of what was going on, we would... Mm -hmm de-escalate care. So, but now because testing is happening on site and very quickly, we can we can do that much more rapidly.
0: Oh good. Fewer your antibiotics, on. better cost. Yay.
2: Yeah, yeah. We were using a lot of antibiotics. And then because everybody's on some kind of either anti treatment or prophylaxis based on their D-dimer. I have been absolutely overwhelmed with consults lately. I'm sure everybody was on antibiotics and or anticoag. So, but the antibiotic piece is really scaled back. So fortunately, yeah, that's good. It's just a lot. It was a lot of monitoring EKGs as well. Cause Mm -hmm. you know, multifocal or atypical pneumonia. So people are getting azithro. They Mm -hmm. were also using it hope, you know, for some anti-inflammatory benefit potentially Mm -hmm. because they didn't want to use steroids, but that kind of flip-flopped
1: for us. Are there students? We're, we don't allow students on campus, so what is, I guess, your student policy right now? And do you have uh, pharmacy residents, and are they involved? Or are they home? What's going on with them?
2: Yeah, we have a very large uh, residency program. At my site, we have four PGY-1s and two PGY-2s. Our PGY-2s are pharmacotherapy and Amcare. And then we have a ton of students and we actually have some that stay at the hospital and rotate through the hospital throughout the year. And I was supposed to have two students on rotation in the end of March and into April, but it came down from leadership. They didn't want to risk not only the health of the student, but the health of the department if a student was to bring in something. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: So they decided right, right at the very beginning, Our workload increased, and they really wanted us to focus on taking care of patients and not worrying about teaching. Our residents are still working. Actually, we have two of our residents are in in the emergency department, conveniently right now, and one is in ICU on MICU. So um, they're getting really great learning out of this. Last month, I had the pharmacotherapy resident. Very, um, it's just like a random group of sin- situations that all kind of like fell together that she didn't have a rotation mm-hmm. and so they're like will you take her like sure so she was actually incredibly helpful we because there I mean literally every day there was three four new studies coming out at least of decent quality that we needed to look at mm-hmm. so she was really helpful and instrumental in helping me you know, review some of this literature, but also the policies and protocols that we changed to help take better care of the patients. She helped me with that too. So she, yeah, she was invaluable to me last month. So I miss her already. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, definitely keeping the residents busy, keeping them learning, but no no students right now. And I don't know when we're going to start having them yet. Yeah. Um, my understanding, Wayne State is the university that we affiliate with and whose pharmacy students we primarily take and I think they have some plans for online learning for the fall which will be interesting they're yeah. already
1: making some so that's why no know. who knows this new normal I don't think we'll ever go back to a true normal um, yeah
2: I think it will get better eventually but I don't think we're ever going back to where we were in
1: January no no yeah. it'll it'll be it'll be weird and different Um, what other questions do you have, Sarah, Um, in that brain of yours?
0: In my brain, (laughs) I think. I guess in terms of your clinic, is there, um, like, have they started thinking about rephasing in so that you can see your clinics in person? And Justine, you, I know you go in once a week. Have they thought Mm -hmm. about expanding more? Is it kind of like everything? Um, yeah, you know,
2: I talked to my pulmonologist about it on Monday, because we're working on like forthcoming schedule. So I need to plan for what days for clinic and everything. Um, Cause I, hell, clinic is two and a half days a week and I can only go one day. So I try to pick the day that has the patients with the most needs or that I know I have to follow up on something with, or if it's just, if there's not anything in any particular issue that I have, I try to pick a day that has the most patients mm-hmm. so I can see the most people. I mean, that's kind of the cool thing about CF is they really need to come to the hot a so, uh, clinic rather, um, like three to four times a year. They get very frequent follow-ups. So I try to catch everybody at least once or twice a year to do a med review and talk to them about how things are going. And they've started doing telemedicine, but my pulmonologist really is reluctant to make them come into clinic, which is hard, you know, because with lungs, you really need to listen to them. <laughs> so I'm not sure... At this point, we don't have an emergent plan to open Mm -hmm. clinic. We're really taking it week by week and looking at the needs of the patients and what's happening. The one thing I would really hope stays is some semblance of this telemedicine piece that we've kind of been forced to integrate. The thing about cystic fibrosis is there's, what, like two and a half, three and a half I say half because there's one very small center um, across the state, and so people come from a very long way to see us. Mm-hmm. I have patients that come from eight hours away to visit oh. the program. Yeah, mm-hmm. so it would be nice, I think, to interact with them face to face a little more frequently through, you know, this kind of process. I mean, it became a necessity out of the, the circumstance, but I really feel like it's something that we could probably keep in play for patients.
1: I think it's amazing how quickly it happened. Um, I'm shocked. We were talk. we've been talking about it for a long time and then it seemed like overnight it became available in Epic. It became available to get paid for and it was just Like, were you guys sitting on this the entire time? (laughs) Because we've been dying to use this for our patients that are far away or who don't have the money to pay to get in or who are, you know, have other challenges for they, they can't physically get into clinic. So I totally agree with you. I I really hope that there's some, I'm, I'm assuming that there will continue and hoping that there will continue to be some part of telemedicine that continues. The question will be, will it be paid for? and if it's not paid for will it really continue but i could i definitely foresee you know like maybe maybe cf patients or you know patients with diabetes or somebody they do you know they have their four visits a year two of them are tele televisits and the other two are in person and actually listen to their lungs do their labs and whatever so i think it'll be it'll be really interesting to see how how this all changes not only our baseline, you know, functions of our daily life, but also how it's going to change healthcare because it's going to change in huge ways.
2: Yeah. I, I think this is a really like career defining circumstance for a lot of us because everything moving forward is going to be very different than what we're used to, you know? Um, so it's, I think, Now the shock of what's going on is over, Mm -hmm. so to speak, and people have acclimated to some degree. I mean, we were all really afraid to come to work at first, you know, Um, but like, this is what we signed up for and we want to be there to help people. And so we're doing it, you know, but Mm -hmm. now we kind of understand what we need to do to keep ourselves safe and our families safe. So we're really kind of focused on, okay, like, let's take care of patients. Let's get this situation taken care of. And then what are we going to do in the future so that we can minimize risk to patients? So I think, especially in a CF population, it would be really advantageous because some of these people, you know, may be able to do their testing, like their pulmonary function testing closer to home. Sure. um, And then just do a spot face-to-face conversation with the doctor where they talk about stuff, get a look at them, Mm -hmm. you know? So I think it'd be great because we know that the less time patients with CF spend in a healthcare facility, the less likely they are to develop a multi-drug resistant, you know, infection. So um, we try to keep them away as much as possible. So yeah, I'm really excited about this as a potential option.
0: Um, One other thing that's been kind of, because I work outpatients, so I'm not Mm -hmm. seeing like the um, acuity of it, of the disease, but... But something is interesting to me is kind of the progression of things. Like, of course, we don't know exactly when people are like, okay, you have been infected today, but when they, like, I guess my question is how fast do they go from like, I'm okay to, I don't feel well to I'm intubated in the ICU. Like, does that vary? Is it fast? Are they? they it's v- a lot?
2: Highly variable. I have seen some people uh, decompensate incredibly quickly And then I've seen other people that it's much slower. I don't, I don't know what decides it, but some people, like if they tank fast, it, it's bad. You know, they're, those are the patients that are going to end up on CRT because their creatinine goes from one to nine to 13 in 48 hours, which is like nothing I've ever seen, you know, a doubling of creatinine. You're like, Oh my God, that's a lot. Or if it goes from one to four, you're like, oh, that's bad. You know, that's really bad. <laughs> and But this is like from one to 13 in two days. It's insane.
1: Does it have anything to do, you think, with them staying home with symptoms or how many days they, you know, had a fever for and they didn't, they were nervous, they didn't want to go in and, or do you think it's just totally de- like totally random?
2: I think that probably plays some part in it. Uh, especially early on that a lot of people that were like, Oh, I've just got the flu. That's what it is. I'm not going to go to the hospital. And then all of a sudden they can't breathe. You know. Yeah, right. So uh, I think that was some of it, but I really do think there's probably patient variables that play into that. Yeah. Um, it
1: feels very random. It
2: feels random because, you know, you see some asthmatics do great and others don't. Mm-hmm. I really like I can't just by looking at somebody's history and their body and their labs know what it is about them. A lot of it is, I think this immune response and cytokine storm that happens, but just understanding why for some people that's triggered and others it isn't Mm -hmm. is the piece we don't know.
1: Yeah. And I think one of our doctors was talking about how this, the cytokine, like they may do fine with this kind of first round and then the cytokine storm hits and then that's when they tank too. Yeah. So maybe it has something to do with they feel fine at home and then they come in, in this kind of cytokine storm. And that's when they're really doing poorly. Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's very sad. Like some of the stuff that I've encountered is just things that are very unique that I've never encountered ever in, in my career. Like um, people who call 911 because they have a spouse that's not doing well. And 911 gets there and the spouse is dead, like rigor mortis dead. And the individual who called 911 is out of their mind because they have encephalopathy from COVID, which, you know, I've never seen that with influenza. I've never Mm -hmm. seen that with pneumonia. I've never seen that with any other virus.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. To have people just like, yeah, it's really... I think there's a lot of people who have probably died at home that we don't know. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like Mm
1: -hmm. We've been, we've been, I've been noticing when I'm looking at patients charts that people are finding family members or family members down calling 911 and like EMTs are not able to do anything. And that's stated in there, like due to COVID EMTs were not able to intubate or do CPR. So I'm sure that locally there's some, know, protocol that they can or cannot do certain things at certain times based on PPE or, mm-hmm. or whatever, but it's scary. You know, like you call expecting to, for assistance with somebody and like, they can't do CPR. They can't help. Or yeah. like you said, they're, they've already been dead.
2: I mean, and I have had patients too, that come in with COVID that are very sick, but they're older and don't want to be intubated and don't want CPR. So they sit on the floor getting, you know, max oxygen support that you can provide without invasive ventilation, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Without intubating and their oxygen saturations in the 80s and they really just aren't doing awesome, you know? And so you're just kind of sitting there watching them and a couple of them we've had, you know, heart to hearts with the family and been like, look, they're not getting better. And I don't think they're going to, you know, they're suffering right now. Mm -hmm. If we keep on this way, maybe you want to revisit what you're doing. And so we've had to transition some people to palliative care and to hospice,
1: Mm -hmm.
2: um, which, you know, I don't know. There was a lot, honestly, of people decompensating and ending up in ICU or dying
0: mm-hmm. at the
2: beginning that I don't see anymore. I can tell you though, I keep track, right? So in the first five weeks, I think I sent 36 people to ICU. I've never sent 36 wow. people to ICU in a year. Yeah. So it was like just codes left and right. The first wow. couple of weeks, it was at least three to four people a day. It was bad. It was yeah. really bad. And I, I don't know if initially it was because people were so sick or they were waiting or thinking it was flu, but whatever is happening in the public, people aren't coming in as sick
1: mm-hmm.
2: when they hit the door.
1: Yeah. Well, so yeah. Goodness gracious. Small progress. I know. It's like, we're going to take everything we can get. (laughs) Yeah. We're getting there slowly. You know, I'm hoping that as states start to open up that we don't see a a bounce back. And I am, like you said, kind of really nervous about the fall and this kind of second wave that potentially might happen Mm -hmm. with, with the next flu season and, Mm -hmm. you know, and, or when people start all the people that we haven't been seeing for all these months, finally do come in with their AKA AKI that they've been sitting at home with or that chest pain that they've been sitting at home with, or their limb ischemia X, Y, and Z that they've been pushing off because they're too scared. They finally all come in at the same time with COVID patients too, and just becomes crazy. So I feel like we're not out of the woods and we won't be for quite a while. Yeah. But I think
2: that, I I think we need to prepare you know, prepare for the worst and hope for the best. And then Mm -hmm. that way, if the worst does happen, we can handle it, you know, Um, at least handle it better than we've been able to the first time around. I think we did a pretty good job at my medical center. I have to tell you my pharmacist leadership and management has really been great and really been very sensitive to, because we have had people in my department who are sick, Mm -hmm. you know, really done everything they can to make us feel comfortable and safe and protected, and I'm very appreciative for that because it helps me sleep better, helps my husband sleep better, knowing that I'm not bringing it home to him or hoping at least. So I think we've done a pretty good job this time. There's definitely things we've learned that we'll we've taken in stride and we'll continue, yeah. you know, for whatever happens moving forward.
1: Right. Yeah, I think it's great that you know you've been so you know really at the the front the forefront of of changes and policies and you know the work that you've done in your in your um your units and and things i think that's i love seeing you know pharmacists being involved um yeah. in those you know yeah. kind of frontline changes which is great
2: yeah i have to tell you though like they really don't want <laughs> don't want me up on the floor if you have a covid unit they don't really want you up there right if you can avoid yeah. it and so I'm doing a lot of calling patient rooms to talk to patients. I really miss being able to physically assess them, but you know, it is what it is. So I'm relying a lot on what the docs and nurses are doing, but, and I've been calling up and talking to my nurses a lot too. And they're like, Oh, you're here. Do you still work here? (laughs) Okay. Yes I do, but I'm not allowed on the floor so that you have enough masks to work with. Okay. So you know, that is what it is, but you know, always being a resource at least. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's really, I think one of the things that I've done a lot of in the last probably eight weeks is because the protocols and the evidence changes so fastly and what we're recommending for patients, you know, changes with that. It's really hard for a lot of the docs to keep up. And so a lot of what I've done is really just like, Hey, FYI, we've changed this. So this drug should now be this. Mm-hmm. If you don't mind, I'll take care of this patient and anybody else I notice that's, you know, appropriate for too. And then they're usually like, oh, awesome. Thanks Thank for you. letting me know. Exactly. Do it. Right. <laughs> so um, really kind of saving the docs because you know, we're having trouble keeping up. I can only imagine you mm-hmm. know what it's like for them as well. So just really serving as like a, an educational resource for them right. um, and helping them out in this mm-hmm. as I know been really greatly appreciated.
0: Yeah. Where are you working from since you're not really where you usually work? Is there like a conference room? Or are you just kind of like, okay, this corner of main pharmacy is mine? No, I side? have an
2: office in the, in the pharmacy department. Um, awesome. We have like the operational pharmacy portion and then uh, an administrative office area. And I have an office there which I don't have an office meet at present so I'm able to isolate myself and they my that's one thing my department has really been great about is giving everybody space that's as far away from a colleague as possible so lots of us working in little offices or spread out across the department working from either a wireless computer on wheels or something in that uh, realm
1: awesome
2: I some that. i know some people are working from home but and i have some colleagues that are doing it like order yeah. verification and stuff but my role is much more clinical i obviously do some order verification but there's some process of processes of what we do that are still kind of paper dependent so mm-hmm. we're working on a way for us to not do them do our monitoring on paper anymore in anticipation of the fall so that's like one of the things so i can still be working sitting at home answering calls answering pages answering questions and Mm -hmm. counseling patients but not actually going in but somebody's got to be there you know to assist with codes and all that kind of stuff so yeah Mm
1: -hmm. well we'll have to see how that goes hopefully we don't have it but if we do we will i think i'll be better prepared for it based on everything that's happened
2: yeah. I think the part that's really interesting is, you know, like our students should be starting, you know, like next week, I think.
1: Mm-hmm. They'll
2: really kind of like what's going to happen with the students on rotation.
1: Right.
2: You know, and then our residents are not far behind that. So we're going to have to get them trained up, I think, really quickly. Mm-hmm. It's going to be, I think, for this resident group, a lot of sink or swim Mm -hmm. because of all the other competing COVID related priorities that it will be going on to try and get us prepped for fall.
1: Right. Well, thank you so much. I think
0: all of this. Yeah. I I learned so
1: much. This was really interesting. And I think that a lot of people, especially if they're not able to go on rotation or they're not able to go into their hospitals are not necessarily seeing the clinical kind of aspects and really know what the kind of day-to-day looks like for an inpatient pharmacist um, that's working on the floor and working with these COVID patients. And I mean, me as an ambulatory care pharmacist, I'm only hearing about it from my coworkers and, you know, Sarah's seeing the patients on the outpatient (laughs) side. So
0: my dad's an inpatient pharmacist, so we talk sometimes, but they're so busy that, and I think you're the perfect one for this. Like, it sounds like your whole hospital has such a, wonderful mindset for approaching the patients and really great. I'll tell you
2: one of my favorite parts about my job and the place that I work. And the reason I stayed there after residency is because not only is it a really great group of pharmacists, but we have an amazing rapport with the physicians and NPs and um, PAs. And so I, we're really well integrated into the hospital and you know, a pharmacist can only do what they're capable of if the people who they work with recognize their competency. And we've been given a lot of autonomy in the way we practice. And, and that's a privilege, you know, that you have to perform very highly in order to have that opportunity. Um, so there's some there's pressure that comes with it to perform and get it right. But it's my favorite part of my job is really the respect and the relationship we have with the other caregivers in the hospital, so I think that climate has really been very helpful in this situation
1: absolutely okay. um yeah, I think that's ideal if if you didn't have that, I don't think that this you know this kind of collaboration would not have worked, absolutely, yeah. Well, thank you for having me ladies. Thank you for decontaminating yourself after your day and still having the energy to hop on
0: and chat with us. And chat about your long days. Yeah. So hopefully everybody
2: really wants to know how I decontaminate. I'll walk you through the many steps that start with before I
1: leave my office. That can be the next podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Carrie Melissa's 10, 20, 20 steps. 400 steps to 400 not bringing
2: COVID home.
1: There you go. <laughs> Perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, well, thank you again so much. We hopefully look forward to seeing you sometime in the near future. In the
0: Lammy universe.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: I was really hoping for convention this year, but.
0: But if anything, we'll have virtual alumni sessions and we hope you hop on for that.
2: Yeah. Well, that would be fun.
0: Yeah. yeah.
2: will totally do that.
0: Yeah. Okay, just seeing we should plan something anyway. We should. I
1: think Afton has suggested a an alumni wine tasting at home, virtually.
2: So. <laughs> Incredible. I don't know when I'm drinking wine lately there's not much tasting happening.
1: <laughs> oh, I was like, hugging. "Wait, if you don't have taste, then <laughs> you should probably get checked for COVID." <laughs> no, I mean I taste
0: hugging. it
1: but
2: very briefly
0: got it like, it just hits the just roof your mouth like, it's of like it just has to work
1: it's <laughs> like my dog's eating they
2: chew but not a lot
1: yeah it's just a, a hoover situation i gotcha <laughs> <laughs> perfect um Great. well you, you thank have you, the
0: rest of your evening thank, thank you. You. you and do. i
1: i'm gonna pause i'm gonna pause this yeah